I started this series on location. And it's about going to the people in the places that Jesus went to. Brent started us off with talking about the Sea of Galilee and what that area looked like and what the sea represented. And then he talked about storms, the storms on that sea. But then he said, God doesn't cause the storms in our life. He stands with us. He stands against those storms. And then he goes beyond that because God's heart for us is to turn those difficult situations, those storms, those hard things, taking our pain and turning it into something beautiful. He takes those broken pieces of our hearts and of our lives and makes something so, so good out of them. That God doesn't cause the storm, but he works through it. He redeems and he restores. And then last week, he told kind of a crazy story about a couple of demon-possessed men and some pigs that fell into the Sea of Galilee. The story was about how Jesus came to make things right, yet asking that very real question, and it's a human question, are we content sometimes to just keep things how they are because that's what we've known, where they can be all kitty-wampus and out of sorts? Are we willing to remain comfortable or are we willing to allow him to make something beautiful out of the chaos that's inside us? Through those stories, we learned that Jesus has power over disease, over the winds and the waves. He had the power over demons. And today, we'll look at two stories where he has the power to forgive sins and the power to heal. Both of these stories that we're going to look at take place inside someone's home. At first glance, they might not seem to connect. But as I've thought about them this week, I really think they do in some pretty striking ways. So if we quick remember what's happening here, Jesus' home base is in Capernaum. And he left there to go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee to minister in the Decapolis. There he had the run-in with the demons, some men living in the tombs, and some pigs. Afterwards, he came back across the Sea of Galilee, and he comes back home to his own town. And this story picks up exactly where Brent left us off last week. We're going to read in chapter 9 today. Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own town. Some men brought to him a paralyzed man lying on a mat. So Matthew is pretty sparse in his telling of this story, omitting some pretty great details that Mark and Luke both used. And I'm wondering, since Matthew worked with numbers, if he was just a logical kind of guy, to the point. More facts, less emotion, which is why I don't work with numbers. But now, Jesus' fame had grown and grown to the point that nearly Everyone seemed to have heard about the power and the authority that Jesus had. They heard about his teaching and his healing. Both Mark and Luke record that Jesus was teaching inside a house, that the crowds were so great, there was standing room only in the house, and there were people all surrounding the house to hear Jesus. So this paralyzed man and his friends, but his friends couldn't get the paralyzed man in the house. So they actually carried him up on the roof, dug through the roofing material, and lowered him down before Jesus. 
which is such a crazy thought because if you think of the work and the effort and the time that it would take to dig a hole in the roof, these were some really faithful friends, and they had a faith that Jesus was going to heal him. But then you think about the people inside. I mean, picture being in here, and suddenly, like, dust starts crumbling down, and then ceiling crumbles, and then maybe some chunks start falling. And I wonder, since this took so long, like, what was Jesus doing? Did he just, was he just still talking as, like, these things were coming down? I don't know. It's, it's a funny thing to think about. And you look up, and then maybe bigger piece, pieces are coming down, and then all of a sudden, there is brilliant sunlight and faces up above just, like, grinning down at you. And I just, that's just such a cool thought. And there are these men looking down at Jesus, and they lower their friend down, standing right, laying right in front of Jesus. I feel like this sounds kind of crazy, kind of desperate, but imagine what this man and his friends had to have been feeling. This guy couldn't walk, so he couldn't have had a job. He couldn't have provided for himself, so he was always caring or relying on other people to care for him. Their friends, his friends, longed for healing for him. There wouldn't have been any way for him to have a normal life. So I'm thinking his friends were probably helping to make sure he had food and a home and caring for him. And they went to such great lengths to see him healed. I think they had heard about Jesus, and they had this hope inside them that surely this man would heal him. And in verse 2, it says, When Jesus saw their faith, so this is after their Lord, he said to the man, Take heart, sons, son, your sins are forgiven. So if we ask the question of that man who had just been lowered through a hole in the roof, forgive me, not heal me? Jesus, I just want to walk my dog. Why would you forgive my sins? Wouldn't you think there'd be an element of disappointment he had to have been having? A letdown and maybe some confusion? Jesus, this guy is paralyzed. He wants to walk. He wants healing, not forgiveness. Which makes me ask the question, why does Jesus forgive first rather than heal? Clearly, Jesus has compassion on the man. He gives them a warm, strong greeting that says, take heart, my son. And I think in those words, Jesus was saying, I know this is hard, but it's going to be okay. So it's not for lack of compassion or interest that Jesus has in this man or his story. It's because Jesus knew that true healing, the most important healing that we need, is through his forgiveness. Before he healed this man's body, he healed his soul. And that is where true healing is found. Verse 3. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, This fellow is blaspheming. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, why do you entertain evil thoughts in your heart? I love a little sermon in a sermon. Sometimes when you have a bunch of verses to read, it's like, oh, there's so much goodness in these. So I thought I would have a little one here for you. Entertain evil thoughts in your heart. I thought about that phrase a lot this week. 
Gabe and I talked about it in the car a couple days ago. And I asked him, I was like, buddy, do you think we think thoughts in our head or in our heart? And we had such a great conversation about it. Why would Jesus phrase it like that? Don't our thoughts come from our mind? <clears throat> but as I've gathered my thoughts this week and was faced with my own humanity, I wondered if our initial thoughts do come from our mind or come from our brain. And then it's what we do with those thoughts that come from our hearts. Two verses that back that up are um, one from 2 Corinthians, hold every thought captive and make it obedient to the mind of Christ. And out of the heart, the mouth speaks. So for example, I was driving this week and I saw a yard sign for a new company. It was their family name. And I thought of, totally randomly, based on what I had read on that name, of a family from the town I grew up in by the same last name. I then remembered things about the family, which was my brain, but then I started remembering some of the yucky part of the story of this family. And then I started thinking some unkind thoughts about the mom, which those were thoughts of my heart. I started thinking more with my heart some unkind, judgmental things about her. Those were the thoughts Jesus was talking about. I was thinking evil thoughts in my heart. I was casting judgment. I didn't have a heart of grace or compassion or the whole story or seeing her as a person. I think a lot of times thoughts from our hearts can have like a head wagging or like hand gestures, you know. I don't know if anybody else talks to themselves, but sometimes I have some really great conversations in my head that I think are a lot of times thoughts of my heart. So I couldn't help think of this family when I read their name. That wasn't a thought. I was like, oh, I'm going to think about them. It just happened. But I could help the thoughts I allowed myself to continue to have. I didn't allow those thoughts to be held captive. I thought thoughts in my heart that weren't honoring to the Lord. And I'm wondering, as I thought about this this week, if that's what Jesus meant by entertaining evil thoughts. Then Jesus goes on to say, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? Have you ever had somebody ask you a question that they probably knew you didn't have an answer to? And when they asked, you knew immediately you didn't have an answer to it? So Jesus is asking these religious leaders which of these things would be easier to do, to forgive or to heal? Well, the answer from their position and the authority that they had standing in that home is neither. They couldn't do either. They didn't have the ability to forgive people's sins, and they didn't have the power to heal. They had to admit that they couldn't do either of these things, that only Jesus could. And sometimes in those situations, admitting you can't do something or don't know how to do something feels embarrassing. You can become a little defensive. Uh, that was a stupid question. You kind of get that. So then they called Jesus a name, a uh, blasphemer, which means they were accusing Jesus of spreading false ideas about God, which is a pretty serious accusation. 
But in that moment where Jesus asked the question, I can picture the Pharisees getting all irritated. Jesus doesn't miss a beat, though. As often Jesus does, he'll ask a question, but he doesn't necessarily answer it. And here, he does something pretty amazing. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, get up, take your mat, and go home. Then the man got up and went home. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe, and they praised God, who had given such authority to men. The setup for this healing was perfect. The people who were watching probably thought, first, what is wrong with this Jesus guy? They wanted him to heal, but here he is just talking about forgiveness. But then Jesus drops the bomb in the room, and he said, get up and walk. People were awestruck because of what Jesus had done. I don't know necessarily, though, if they were just awestruck because he healed the man or if they started to see more and more of who Jesus was. Jesus just revealed his power and his authority again. He calms, out, he calms storms. He drives out demons. He heals sickness. He forgives sins. Jesus is the source of all kindness and goodness and mercy. But he's also the mighty source of power. Jesus is God. He forgave the sins of that paralyzed man, and then he healed his body, which that authority and power can only come from God. Jesus told him to get up, pick up his mat, and go home. I picture Jesus saying, buddy, life is going to look different for you. It's going to feel different. Run. Go home. Tell your family the good news. Matthew mentions twice this going home. First, in the words of Jesus, and then in the description of what he did. And I wonder if it's because forgiveness is really a coming home to God. It's a restoration of how things were supposed to be both with God and then in turn with our friends and our family. But do you wonder why Jesus told him to take your I think it's different than telling your kids to pick up after themselves. I don't think it was that at all. Because the definition for take in the Greek is to take away, to remove. Jesus was saying, you don't need that old thing anymore. Get rid of it. You are healed. You are free. You don't have to carry that anymore. Which makes me pause and ask the question, what mats do we carry around with us? If we're healed of sin, why do we still pick up guilt and carry it with us? Shame, a distorted view of who we think our identity is, the weight and the heaviness, Jesus meets us where we are, and he says, you are forgiven. You are healed. Get rid of that old mat. You are free. It's not yours to carry any longer. And here's the second story. Verse 9. As Jesus went on from there, which that phrase kind of hit my funny bone, like NBD, no big deal which is funny to me. Um, 
Sometimes my kids will text me letters, and I literally have no clue what they're saying to me until I Google it. I was texting with my oldest daughter this week, and I asked her a question, and she responded with I-D-E-K-T-B-H. Do you know what that is? Carter, Reese. I mumbled to myself, I'm like, I don't even know what that means. And so I Googled it, and it means I don't even know, to be honest. And I didn't. So what's funny to me is, is Matthew saying, and Jesus went on from there, no big deal. Because the there was this house filled with people, a hole cut through the roof, name-calling, forgiving, and healing. And Matthew just says, as Jesus went on from there. But as he went on from there, Jesus saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. So before Matthew became a disciple, he was a tax collector. Tax collectors were a special breed of sinners in the eyes of the Jewish people because they worked for Rome. The Jewish people owed certain taxes to the Jewish religious temple, known as the temple tax. But then, since they also lived under the rule and the authority of the Roman Empire, they also owned ta owed taxes to the Roman government. The taxes to the Jewish temple were relatively small, but the taxes owed to the Roman government were excessive and burdensome and just plain wrong. So the Romans set up the Jewish tax collectors to do their dirty work, to collect the money from their countrymen in order to make sure all of these taxes were paid. So Matthew, who ends up being the author of this book and one of Jesus' disciples, was one of those guys. He was a tax collector. So here, Jesus sees and calls another person in a different situation. And Matthew's response was nearly the same as the paralyzed man. When Jesus invited him, he got up. In the paralyzed man's story, it was because he was healed and he could walk again. But in Matthew's scenario, there was a different kind of sickness that Matthew was stepping out of. And it had everything to do with his job. Tax collectors were hated by their fellow Jews. Not, not only because they worked for Rome, but because a lot of the time, tax collectors would charge extra here and there and tuck it away for themselves. So they were thieves. Matthew was working for the Romans against his own people and probably stealing from his own people. It doesn't sound like the type of person you'd want in your inner circle. But Jesus still called him. Jesus saw Matthew for who he was, and yet who Jesus knew he could be. Jesus called him to get up and follow him, which is the first thing. Jesus calls us where we are. And where was Matthew? He was sitting right there at the tax collector's table. Matthew didn't need to leave the table before Jesus called him. He doesn't wait for Matthew to change first. 
He sees him and calls him as he is while he's still sitting there collecting taxes. This is the important part, the part that kind of takes my breath away, that Jesus does the same thing for you and for me. He doesn't wait for us to get our acts cleaned up and get our lives together first. He calls us right where we are as we are. In Romans 5, 8, it says, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We didn't have to do anything for Jesus to do that for us. How do you know that God loves you? Because he sent his son while we were still sinners to die for us. He doesn't wait for us to change our life and get things in order first. That's the first thing we learn from this story. Jesus calls us just as we are. We don't have to prove anything to God. He chose to love us long before we had a chance to prove ourselves. He loves us for who we are, not for what we do. So when Jesus, this rabbi, this miracle worker, sees Matthew sitting there, he gives him an invitation to follow him. Matthew gets up and he follows Jesus. But then it gets even better. The second thing is this. Jesus calls us to follow him. Jesus calls us as we are, but he doesn't leave us where we are. He doesn't call us to stay where we are. He calls us while we were still in our sin. And then he calls us out of that sin. He calls us to follow him, to be his disciples, to walk as he walked, to live as he lived, to love as he loved. Those two simple words, follow me. They're a call to discipleship. Following Jesus is so intensely personal. When you come to Christ, you are following a living, breathing, alive person. Not a set of rules or a way of life. You don't need to get your life together before coming to Jesus. Jesus calls us as we are. But he doesn't leave us as we are because he loves us too much to do that. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. After Matthew got up, where do we find him? At his house with Jesus. It's a party at Matthew's house. Not only was Jesus inviting Matthew to follow him and leave his old life behind, we see Jesus followed Matthew into his house to have dinner with him. Jesus is embedding himself in Matthew's world. Jesus entered Matthew's heart and his house to redeem it. We just let that sink in. Jesus is embedding himself into Matthew's life. Matthew invited Jesus and the friends he knew, these messy tax collectors and sinners, to have dinner at his house. And Jesus said yes. Jesus went to this party at Matthew's house with all of Matthew's other messed up friends. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, 
Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus, being there, reclining at Matthew's table, raised a pretty serious question from the religious leaders. What was Jesus doing? I'm sure they thought to themselves, how dare this man associate himself with people like tax collectors and sinners? These people are wicked. Who does Jesus think he is? Jesus is living kind of an eye-raising, questionable life here. He's associating with some pretty questionable people. He claimed to have the power to forgive sins. He demonstrated power to heal. And now he's hanging out at a tax collector's house? He's associating and befriending and eating with the scum of the society? Sharing a table is one of the most uniquely human things that we do. No other creature consumes its food at a table. And sharing a table with other people reminds us that there is more to eating, more to the food than just filling our stomachs. We don't eat just for sustenance. Sharing a meal with someone is intimate. It's heart-connecting. And I would argue, holy. Sharing a meal with someone brings healing. Sharing a meal brings connection and belonging. Sharing a meal brings God's nearness, his kindness, his love. Sharing a meal with someone is seeing the heart of God in the face of the person across the table from us. That's why Jesus was eating with those sinners. Then the Pharisees whispered to Jesus' disciples, Why does your teacher hang out with these kind of people? those people. People sure have been consistent throughout humanity, haven't they? On hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. I love what Bible commentary Matthew Henry says about this verse. Those who consider themselves righteous will sooner be sick of their Savior than sick of their sins. Those who consider themselves righteous will sooner be sick of their Savior than sick of their sins. I thought that was really profound, and I never want to be sick of my Savior. Jesus heard what the Pharisees were saying behind his back, and so he answered them. I think he had a little sarcasm in his answer because these Pharisees had dedicated their lives to being experts on the Bible. And Jesus said to them, go and learn what this means. He calls them out by quoting Isaiah, Hosea 6.6, 6, which says, For I desire faithful love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Jesus was telling the Pharisees, you guys have this all wrong. They thought they were well. They thought they were righteous. Jesus is basically saying, I'm not here for the arrogant people who think they have it all figured out. I came for those 
who are messed up and those that know they need help. I came for sinners. I came for the sick. Jesus is calling the sinners to himself. Matthew understood this. He followed Jesus, and then he brought Jesus to his friends. God wants our hearts. He wants us to follow him, and he longs to heal those broken places of our hearts. I think what Matthew is wanting us to see from both of those stories is that Jesus sees us, that Jesus came to heal the sick, both the physically sick and the spiritually sick. If you, anyone who doesn't think that they're sick or that they're not in need of healing, they're not going to be able to truly connect with this good news of Jesus. Jesus is sitting in the middle of this group of sick, rejected, hurting, broken people, the untouchable outcasts. And he did this to model the compassion and humility that God desires of us. The type of party that Matthew threw, that Jesus attended, was with people who weren't invited to the dance. They didn't make the dean's list. There weren't MVP medals at their house. They were Matthew's friends, equally messy people who were willing to sit with Jesus at the table and get to know him. I wonder if they longed for change if they sensed with excitement that this man who was sitting with them was different, that just knowing him would bring a healing. I wonder if they just found peace in his presence because they could come as they were. Jesus brought good news to Matthew's house. Jesus brought redemption to Matthew's house. Jesus brought a fresh start to Matthew's house. Does anyone here need Jesus to come into your house and help you discover what walking a life of forgiveness and joy and peace and love looks like? Do you need to hear Jesus say, get up. You don't need to carry that. You are healed. You are whole. You are so loved. Do you need to hear Jesus say, follow me. Come out from behind the false security that that tax collector's table is giving you and follow me. Jesus wants the invitation. He wants to visit your house with whatever mess is surrounding you in there, with whatever people you have in your life. He's not afraid of what he might see when you open your life up to him. He wants us to know that in spite of our messes, we are so loved. He wants you to know that the history within the walls of your house, the pages that make up the story of your life, can be washed and cleaned and renewed and restored and rebuilt. Jesus sat with the worst of them. He knew every single thing about them. And then his miraculous, tender, fervent grace re wrote their stories to find fullness of life, to find peace and joy and hope beyond all of the other things that we so try to fill our lives with. 
We have two stories today about two different men, both of whose lives were radically altered because of Jesus. Maybe you're like the paralyzed man, feeling surprised that Jesus would look at the shadowy places of your heart that no one can see, rather than heal that bigger thing. Maybe you're wrapped in the false security and comfort that that smelly old mat is giving you, holding tightly to the old things rather than throwing them down and running in complete freedom. The weight of it, that the weight that it gives you keeps you from fully going home, home to him, a friend of might, of peace, of power, of rest, of joy, of hope. Or maybe you're like Matthew, living in a way that isn't causing you to flourish. Jesus is calling you today while you're still sitting behind that tax collector's table to come follow him just as you are into a new life of flourishing. Or maybe you're like the Pharisees in both of the stories, thinking thoughts with your heart that are unkind, kind of mean, judgmental towards those people. Maybe you take false comfort in thinking you're not really sick to enough to allow the doctor in to heal the broken places of your heart. Don't keep him out. This glorious, glorious healing of good news means, though, we are not alone. We don't have to try to figure out this healing alone. He is with us. He loves us enough to come and call us, and he loves us enough to not leave us where we are. Will you pray with me? Father, we hear you say, come and follow me. Father, we hear you say, your sins are forgiven. Now you are healed. Get up and walk. Throw down that mat. Lord, I pray that we have the courage and the obedience to examine our hearts, to ask ourselves those questions. Father, where you want to heal us. Father, thank you for your presence in our lives. Thank you for your witness. Thank you that we don't have to figure this out alone. Thank you that no matter how messy or ugly we can be, God, you want us. You desire us. You are our good, good Father, and we love you.